This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. With each opportunity that I have to talk about what I do, it provides me a chance to think about not just what I do, but why I do it. In having to explain my process, I really have to turn the lens on myself to understand the how and the why of what I do. That's why teaching can be just as much a learning experience for me as it is for my students. When I have the opportunity to do that with others, the learning experience becomes all the more interesting and thought-provoking. And I had just that opportunity when I shared the stage with Colin Westerbeck and Julia Dean. Colin is an educator and a curator who is also the co-author of Bystander, A History of Street Photography. Julia is the founder of the Los Angeles Center of Photography, formerly the Julia Dean Photography Workshops. Both of them have appeared previously on the show, and I'll have links to their episodes in the show notes. We led a panel on the topic of street photography at the DNJ Gallery in Santa Monica, in which we discussed not only the definition of street photography, but also the role of the editor, the impact of smartphones, and what it takes to make a good photo a great photograph. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, welcome everyone. I'm everybody Anex Perello, uh, the host of the Candid Frame Photography Podcast. It's a podcast I've been doing for the, uh, uh, the last nine years. So, so today we're going to have an interesting conversation about street photography. I feel kind of humbled being up here with these two people because they're, they're each accomplished in their very own right. So I just feel like, you know, I have the excuse of the show to, <laughs> to get me up here. But um, let me just read this um, short, short information that I have. To my right is Julia Dean, and she is a photographer, educator, and founder of the Los Angeles Center of Photography, formerly the Julia Dean uh, Photo Workshops. She began her career as an apprentice to pioneering photographer Bernice Abbott. She has traveled over 40 countries while freelancing for numerous relief groups. Uh, Julia received a Bachelor of Science degree in photography at the Rochester Institute of Technology and has a Master of Arts degree in journalism from the University of Nebraska. And uh, for the last 15 years, she has concentrated on street photography, not only in Los Angeles, but all over the world. And uh, to my left is Colin uh, Westerbeck who is a curator, writer, and teacher of the history of photography. Um, before moving to Los Angeles, where he has taught at UCLA and USC, he was curator of photography at the Art Institute of Chicago. He is a regular contributor to publications such as Los Angeles Times and West Magazine. He is also the co-author, along with Joe Meyerwitz, with Bystander, a history of street photography, which is easily the most thoughtful, thorough, Bible that you can have on street photography. If you don't own a copy, you should, and hopefully when the third edition comes out, you'll have the opportunity to do so. We're surrounded by all these wonderful street photography images that were uh, taken as part of students' participation in in, uh, this young lady's uh, street photography workshop. And so we're going to talk about street photography, but one of the things I thought would be, we'll eventually get into is the whole idea of what makes a good street photograph. But I think what we'll start with is have each of uh, my uh, uh, cohorts here uh, share a little bit 
about how they came to street photography and how that's influenced or changed their lives. So uh, why don't we start with you, Julia? Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming. I, I uh, many of you know, because many of you in the audience are my friends, um, I uh, was working as a journalist, a photojournalist for many years, uh, a poor one, uh, a documentary photographer, but I got all around the world and did a lot of uh, socially concerned work. Um, I was a college teacher for 16 years before I started uh, the Julia Dean Photo Workshops. And once I started that place, uh, there was no time to do my socially concerned work anymore. So I had to find something else that uh, impassioned me uh, photographically. And uh, I started taking people on travel workshops around the world. And we would go to major cities like Paris and Budapest and Prague and Vienna. And I started uh, shooting on the streets in Havana. And um, then when I came home, I kind of went, well, now what do I do? And then I, I, I went downtown one day and started shooting, and I went, oh, geez, where have I been, and why have I not been shooting? So for the last five years, I've been shooting in downtown L.A. Four years ago, I moved downtown so I could be close to my personal project. So that's what my passion is these days, is street photography, and there are a lot of people of like minds in the audience in front of me. Yeah, I... Uh got interested in street photography um, in New York in the 1970s. Uh, I was living on the Upper West Side of New York in a rent-controlled apartment, and the Upper West Side was uh, like this little village of artists and academics and people like that. I knew a painter who lived at 100th and, and uh, Riverside Drive. I lived at 103rd, and he knew this photographer who lived at 100th Street, and he thought that I might be interested in meeting him, so he introduced us, and it was Joel Meyerowitz. And the first day I went to Joel Meyerowitz's uh, apartment, he was working in the dark room, uh, and he said, I'll be about 20 minutes here. Look at this while you're waiting. And he dumped this book on my lap. Uh, it was a book called The Americans by some guy named Robert Frank. Uh, and by the time he came out of the dark room, I was jumping up and down. I had been teaching and, and writing a weekly film column uh, 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 for Commonweal Magazine and teaching the history of the movies. And so my first recognition of the significance of still photography was that this book was the most incredible paper movie I had ever seen. And from then on, it just went on and on. Joel and I have continued to collaborate, and we're hoping that next year, Fiden is going to bring out uh, the third edition of Bystander with a whole new back section about today's street photography and what's changed since the second edition came out in 2000. And, and just, uh, just briefly, for me, street photography has probably been part of my life since I've picked up a camera. Um, I learned photography at the Boys Club of Hollywood. And um, as soon as someone put uh, a loaded camera in my, in my hand, I was walking the streets of Hollywood making photographs. So that's been, for me, street photography is just, and is, is completely been street photography. It's, it's my palette. It's where uh, I've made, you know, made so much of, of, of my work. You know, but what's interesting, uh, it seems like street photography has had a resurgence over the last several years. And it's very interesting to, to when I talk to young photographers, these devices have provided entry into this world. But one of the things I hear almost as a mantra over and over again is, is I didn't realize this was a thing. Street photography. They, they were going out there and making photographs. And all of a sudden they realize there's a whole history, there's a whole legacy um, that goes along with that. Um, let, let's start with that. I mean, just how these devices have transformed not only what, how people make photographs, but how it's sort of changed 
you know, the images that you're seeing, not only your own, but the works of uh, other people. Colin, why don't we just start? The fact is that the, the, uh, the iPhone uh, and droid cameras and things like that really are changing the culture of photography and, and indeed uh, the whole digital revolution is, is an incredible watershed. I recently wrote a piece on the, the show that's now uh, at the Getty and about that as a reaction to this moment of utter crisis. But what's interesting about this and what puts it in some historical perspective perhaps is that something almost as transformative, if not in fact in some ways even more transformative, of course happened right after World War I when the 35 millimeter Leica camera came out. It had actually been invented in 1914 in Germany, but then first the war and then some other things prevented its going into production. But when the hand camera, this little quiet hand camera with six feet of movie film in it, the, the amount of film that was on a roll of film was because Barnack, the guy who invented it, held his arms out as far as he could from one to the other, and that's the, that became the standard roll of film. But that too was, you know, was a moment, again, we think of that so much as now having produced all this classic photography. And you know, what you say about somebody you know, gave you a camera and you went out and started shooting on the street and you know, realized that was a thing, sort of made it, invented it for yourself and then found out later. Well, in a way, Cartier-Bresson did the same thing. I mean, he didn't know much about photography. Um, he, for, he took his first photographs actually in Africa. He was a very rich, very nervous, energetic young guy in his 20s and he started traveling and he, he to, to him in a way, uh, I knew him a bit late in his life and even then a camera to him was a little like worry beads for, for an Arab. I mean he, he had to have that thing fondling it all the time so he carried it around, started taking pictures and invented uh, a version of a genre that without knowing that it had existed before and that people had done it with view cameras and it had this history. So we're, we're in a similar kind of transformative moment now where uh, ignorance and new opportunity are really making some interesting advances. Also, uh, digital cameras, uh, because of uh, their flexibility and the density of the negative that you can make, I mean, it's not a negative, it's a direct positive, but still, uh, has allowed some photographers actually to intensify that, you know, cacophony of color that you see. So much signage now has descended, that used to be on billboards, has descended to street level. These scrims that they put up on storefronts and office buildings and everything else. You, you know, you're, in a strange way, we really do live literally in a postmodern world now where we're surrounded by images made by somebody else, not by people, but by images of people doing all kinds of crazy things. And there are some photographers who've made great street photography out of that by, by using scale to pose some brightly dressed person against you know, one of these uh, kind of anonymous scrims of, of some glamorous person or a car or something like that. So um, you know, I think street photographers uh, uh, in every culture and in every moment in history, they have to deal with what the given is. And the given is this kind of color cacophony that's going on right now. Um, and uh, it's part of the busyness that, that they incorporate into the picture and, and try and play off of in some way, and some of them, I think, do it quite well. I can't add to that. That's so great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easily, we could just listen to Cal call and speak all day. Um, you know, it's, I think that the, there's always the, the question of what is street photography? And, and I think one of the wonderful things about it is that, you know, it can be pretty much anything that you want it to be. 
Um, though there are some people that will say, oh, only these kinds of street photographs are, are street photographs and street portraits are not street photographs and so on and so forth. But uh, I, I think that one of the, I think the thing that attracts me to street photography and I think so many peop other people is that, that fluidity of what it can be. Uh, makes it accessible to a lot of people. It's not just the, the presence of these very easy devices to use in terms of making photographs. It's the fact that, you know, you can go out there regardless of what kind of camera that you have. You can go anywhere and you can just start making um, photographs. Um, is that, do you feel like that's mm -hmm. part of the attraction for some of the people who take, take your classes? Um, I start on, on Monday, I start a, a week-long uh, teen street photography class. I'm anxious to see how many of them bring their iPhones versus a, a camera. I, I feel certain that some of them will probably use their iPhones. Um, I don't really care how anybody, what camera anybody uses, as long as they, they uh, follow the, the rules and, and the ethics of the profession and the, uh, the genre. And... <clears throat> and Respect being on the street, I guess. So it doesn't really, and the street doesn't really matter to me uh, about the cameras. And all my uh, my sh street shooting buddies use nice cameras versus iPhones. Nobody in our classes uses iPhones, do they? I haven't seen anybody. Let me, I, let me add something there. Um, the the um, the one problem with an iPhone is that its, its standard setting is wide and has a fair amount of distortion in it. <clears throat> and I would be glad to hear from anybody here who's been shooting with an iPhone or from either of you who maybe looked into this, there must be apps that make it actually a much better, I know that, that there are actually separate lenses you can buy for this little tiny uh, uh, opening on the back of the yeah. phone. Uh, but there also must be apps that are, that are, more, that are truer to the, the uh, perfectly proportioned rectangle of the, of the Leica, or at least some version of it, than the iPhone naturally is with its rather wide setting and its difficulty of you know, tweaking your fingers to get it to, to another setting. Yeah, there are no shortage of apps out there. I think the, uh, the, 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 the lens adapters, I think they're called the Oclip or the Oclip or something yeah, like that. Right. Yeah, you know, I've shot, I've shot with, with my phone and part, you know, what was interesting for me is when I went to New Orleans, I was on vacation and I went up there with uh, a 5D, a bunch of lenses. And after a couple of days, I just said, to hell with this, because I was just carrying this equipment and, and I just started photographing with my phone. And I found it an amazing, liberating experience because what started happening is that that impulsive desire to make a photograph immediately was not burdened by any technical settings on the camera. I would just see, react, and shoot. See, react, and shoot. And I was incredibly prolific during that time. And I, I experienced a consistency in terms of the photographs that somehow it eluded me with a DSLR. And I think part of it was, is that I wasn't prejudging what I was seeing and experiencing in, in, within the context of whether or not it's a good photograph or not. Mm -hmm. I just said, oh, that looks cool, and shot it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that experience really helped sort of redefine what I do with the camera subsequently. Mm -hmm. I realized that, that there was a part of my head that was editing while I was shooting. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I recognize that that editor has no place when I'm shooting. That editor, his only role is afterwards when I'm looking at the computer and assessing which images I'm going to work on and going to print and so on and so and so forth. So, 
I think in that respect, it can be really freeing to shoot with, with this, given all the limitations that you just, you just spoke of. Let's get to the question that I, I asked earlier. Uh, what makes a good street photograph? I know it's a really broad question, but I think it's a question that a lot of people have. So either of you want to try and handle well, that sure. one? Sure. I think the most important thing is content. I mean, you have to have good content. And, I mean, I've even seen a photograph that was out of focus. I, I prefer a photograph in focus. But, but I've seen a beautiful photograph out of focus because the content was so strong. Now you add in focus and great light and great composition uh, along with that, and your photograph gets better and better. But content, in my eyes, is everything. And my, my, uh, my friends have heard me say that more than once. Yeah, I want to stress that the basic definition of street photography is everyday life in the street. So that... There is a tendency that's perfectly understandable when a young photographer or a novice, whatever their age, uh, wants to shoot street photographs, they're going to find a parade or some place where they can depend on there'll be people doing crazy things and there'll be a sort of made subject there. And certainly street photographers have always gone to parades and there's not a great one you, you can name who hasn't you know, made wonderful pictures there. But what I would urge is from the beginning, go out and look at everyday life. And, and look for the kinds of things, the sort of fleeting juxtapositions and impositions that everyone else would walk right by and not have seen. If you start looking for those things and work on refining your reflexes to that, then even when you go to parades and things that have a kind of given subject, you're going to make much more interesting pictures because that, that business of everyday life you know, not a news event, not a special occasion, not something that's a given graphic, but something that's just so ordinary that everybody else would pass it by. This is what Cartier-Bresson did. It's what someone like Winogrand did, sometimes by provoking events rather than... But really, the ultimate uh, definition of a street photographer for me is someone who's invisible in the crowd, who can see what's going on, who can move and be alert and ready to jump uh, and yet not have anyone around realize that, that, there, that there is this kind of spring waiting to go off right there. And to be able to develop that ability to be invisible yourself and to see what's invisible to everyone else is the real essence of what great street photography is. It's juxtaposition. It's the relationship of one thing to another that everyone else is completely oblivious to that as a photographer, you realize that there's humor or that there's contrast or that there's these things between, you know, a person and what's in the background or in the foreground. And it, and it can be virtually anything. And that elicits, you know, that moment of surprise mm -hmm. of looking at something that's completely ordinary, looking at something that is incredibly familiar, and then all of a sudden seeing it revealed in a completely different way. You know, there are two approaches you know, to, to street shooting. I think commonly people think that, you know, you're out there hunting with a camera and just raising your camera to eye and just snapping and just, you know, and sort of hunting for those moments. And then there are other moments, like with uh, uh, Brisson, he would actually sort of camp out at a spot, mm -hmm. you know, and he would basically carefully compose the scene and wait for this mm -hmm. telling element and this gesture uh, to come in to sort of complete the photograph. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not obvious that Photographers have created images in that way because they see videos like the one that you did with uh, Joe Meyerowitz uh, back in the 70s, mm -hmm. where he's in a, uh, a street uh, corner in New York and he's just there, and all this, you know, theater of life is happening around them, and he's just pulling frames. Right. 
which I'm is the only yeah. person who sees what he's doing, really, yeah. because I'm there to watch him work and to, you know, uh, even be a lookout in certain ways. But, but uh, right, he's standing on the street corner. There must have been a hundred or more people walk by uh, in, every few minutes, and none of them were really aware of him. And he was this absolutely wired spring. Let me say one other thing about um, the difficulty of of seeing the subject, of responding to it, and even of recognizing it when you've taken a great picture sometimes. And one of the things that Joel has discovered about digital cameras is, of course, you go out and he would go out uh, back in the 60s and 70s and you know, maybe shoot two rolls in a day uh, or three rolls in a day max. Uh, now people go out and they can shoot three or 400 pictures in a day. And what he realizes some younger street photographers who only know digital are doing is they'll pick three or four that they think have potential and flush the rest at the end of the day. And Joel and any street photographer, Bruce Davidson this tr is true of, and I could name many others, will tell you that there were times when they took a picture and suddenly realized that what they were, the picture they were taking now that they, weren't, that they weren't sure of but thought they'd try it, that they took that picture before. And they would go back through all of their contact sheets. Sometimes it takes you a year to recognize a new idea that has a lot of potential. And if you throw everything away every day, those moments aren't going to come to you. That kind of latent learning experience where even you don't recognize it at first. What's your experience been with, with, with that, making, making discoveries of your work after the fact, after you've made the photographs that, and it wasn't immediately obvious to you that, oh, this is a great photograph. Oh, that's a really fun moment when that happens. <laughs> Looking at old work and finding some gems that you missed. You know, back in those days, I, I uh, you know, you, you grow to be a better photographer every year, you hope. Um, and so you look back on things and realize, well, not only was I not a very good photographer back then, but I wasn't a very good editor either, so it's worth looking at your stuff again. And I just put a, a couple of years ago, I put a book together on my general stores project because I'd trucked around the U.S. Uh, with my tent and my old car and, and photographed these uh, sort of the last of the dying general stores uh, across America. And uh, I went through those negatives. I only thought I had two or three good ones, and I found 27 pictures that I liked. So I put a little book together. You know, so that's, that's fun. And so I think that... I think it's better to just be frugal in your, a little more frugal in your shooting and, and, and then not think about erasing all of, all of those because I think people overshoot. Um, but I was a frugal shooter all my life because I was paying for the film and it was uh, expensive. So I'm, I'm still a frugal shooter and I think that people need to be more frugal because I think people, if they shoot three or 400 pictures in a day, you're probably going to want to throw... 290 of them away. Yeah, I think, it's, I think that one of the things that, that digital has sort of created is it creates an opportunity where it's easy to shoot, but, but makes it more difficult to learn to see. And, and when, you were, when we were shooting film, old fogies shooting film, you know, you realize how much this was going to cost you in terms of buying the film and getting a process and making it print. So you weren't going to go blow through a brick of film right. during one, uh, you know, just one shooting day. But I think digital... It, because it's so easy to just produce these images, you can just start shooting without really paying attention to how you're seeing. And I think that's the, that's the harder thing to do. One of the things that I, I, I talk about in my workshops is, you know, slow down. Or, or, or to, to emphasize it, slow the F down. Because <laughs> everybody is such a rush. And I think that street photography affords a sort of meditative practice 
to really be in the moment. Because in order to be able to recognize that juxtaposition of unrelated objects that are in the, in the scene, you have to be very present. You can't be preoccupied with what happened before or what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't be worried whether that photograph you took five minutes ago is the best photograph you've ever taken or whether there's another great photograph waiting for you around the corner. You have to be incredibly present, incredibly calm, and, and in order to be able to recognize something that's happening in seconds. When you, when you converse with Joel and you had the opportunity to sort of mm -hmm. witness him uh, doing that, mm -hmm. uh, seeing him didn't necessarily explain to you what was happening. What did you learn from the conversations that helped you to understand what that process was about? Yeah, well, again, a lot of the, the uh, I would go out on, uh, on the street with him and, and again, stand a, a bit away so that I didn't attract attention by staring at him myself and often wonder, well, what was he taking a picture of there? And I think, well, I'm, I'm not looking at it from the same angle. Maybe I could see it. But again, the, um, you know, the answer was, well, let me, let me put it this way. One of the wisest, most perceptive things that was ever said about photography was a one sentence by Walker Evans, who said, photography is editing. Robert Frank shot something in the neighborhood of 25,000 pictures over the years that he made the Americans, and he cut it down to 82 in the book. That's what made it a great book. Not, he couldn't have gone out and taken those 82 pictures without taking the 25,000 others <laughs> that he kept shooting and shooting and shooting and saving it all. When he came to make the book, he went back to through all the contact sheets and, you know, and, and narrowed down areas of pictures or different kinds of pictures and then really looked for the one that summed up all the others. So again, I, I think that the thing that I realized from talking to Joel was the romance of it, the kind of uh, cowboy image of the street photographer is the guy who's shooting from the hip. But that's not what makes a great street photographer. It's the ability to go back at myriad pictures and, real, and realize one particular one. And often, again, to, to make it the beginning of a context for others that will build into a book. Yeah, the, the, the process, yeah, the process of editing yeah. is absolutely valuable because it's only then that you figure out what the heck you were doing. Because you're going out there and you're being very impulsive, you're being reactive, you're putting together a body of work, but it's only when you sit down to edit that you kind of understand what was happening in your subconscious, why you were responding not only to that particular subject, but why you kept returning to it over and over and over again. And, and that speaks to why personal projects are so important. And I know you've, you've worked on several personal, personal projects. Why don't you tell us, tell us about your process? in terms of the personal project, not only in terms of shooting, but this, this thing we're talking about with respect to uh, editing. Sure. Um, well, I, I agree with everything you're saying about editing and sequencing, and, and it it's, it's, uh, takes a, a long time sometimes to, to do it well, and it's important, I think, to get other feedback from people. And that's why I like hanging out with my classes, because we all give each other feedback on, on you know, what works and what doesn't work. As, as far as my process goes, I'll go out and shoot, and I go out usually for, you know, two or three hours. Um, and I, I immediately come home and look at my work. I don't look at it much while I'm, on, while I'm out shooting. I heard uh, last week, I, I heard one of our teachers who's teaching a, a teenage class. And I heard him give really good advice to these teenagers. And he was saying, look, we take a picture, because they were going to go on the streets. Take a picture and, and look at it to make sure that your exposure is okay. And then don't look at anything 
and work the situation and shoot and shoot and shoot. And just like we did with film, you know, we never looked at the back of the camera. That's just uh, nice now that we can see that our exposure is good. But then, you know, I've had people that I've watched uh, look at, like, every four pictures, they look at the back of their camera, and, and I think it slows you down, and I, I don't think that's a, a, a good habit to be in. But then when I come home, I just I edit right away. But I, I have taken to not throwing things away, because uh, I was in the beginning, and now I'm, I'm not. I mean, I'm throwing out of focus, uh, badly exposed ones out of the way, out, out. But other than that, I'm keeping things. One of the reasons is because I realized it, it's kind of nice to be able to show in my classes a whole series of pictures that it took me to get to the one good one. Or, worse than that, a whole series of pictures and I never did get to the good one. <laughs> and unfortunately, that happens to one too many times. Oh, yeah, I can completely relate to that. I mean, I can take a look at it. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, it's a good reason to keep all the photographs, because you can take a look at your failed attempts, mm-hmm. and at some point you'll understand why they failed. Mm-hmm. So when you go out there and you encounter a similar situation, you'll recognize what it is that you need to do in order to make it work. Because you know circumstances, even though they may not be exactly the same, repeat themselves over and over and over again when you're out there on the street. Mm-hmm. So that, that practice and all those failed p- photographs really proved to be really important. I know for me that, that one of the, the key things for me becoming a better photographer was looking at great work. You know, I remember being in college, I would have these books, and I would take a look at Joel's work. I would take a look at Robert Frank's work, mm-hmm. you know, Gary Winogrand, just all these, these people. And I would see them seeing the world in ways that I couldn't even imagine, mm-hmm. especially in terms of the choices they would make in, in terms of not what they, not just what, they put in the frame, but how they would place things in the frame. They would make choices that weren't obvious to me, that, that were way beyond placing your subject off-center and the rule of thirds. Mm-hmm. They were sometimes making choices that were just so out of, that just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And somehow these photographs were just as effective and just as impactful. As you were basically getting your own photo education as a result of putting together Bystander, mm-hmm. what were some of those revelations for you in terms of what's possible with a photograph? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were certain kinds of situations. And again, uh, the book, as you know, those of you who've seen the book or read it, you know, it goes back to the very beginning of photography when the, when the process was quite slow and the cameras were, were um, uh, very awkward to manipulate. And then we get this big breakthrough when the 35 millimeter Leica comes along and so forth. And that, the nature of what you can do changes at that moment. So the nature of what was done changed at that moment. But the thing that, that makes it difficult if you're a photographer to arrive at some consensus, some, you know, some single idea that you can carry into your own work is that the great ones all make pictures so different from each other that there is really often no common denominator there that's going to tell you how to do it yourself. Think of the difference between the way Robert Frank pictures look, the way that uh, Walker Evans's picture look. Evans is in many ways much more meditative. Sometimes he's using a bigger camera, but he's also much more meditative. Uh, Cartier-Bresson is on the fly, but he always has this golden mean in the back of his head. Whereas Evans really likes it sometimes when he can get a a quite off-balance picture. And then Winogrand comes along and he's a provocateur. He's the opposite of Cartier-Bresson in the sense that Cartier-Bresson tried to never attract attention if he could. 
And, and Winogrand often attracted attention and provoked people in, in certain ways in, in certain situations. So that what you wind up with is the realization that you have to, there are certain parameters you're working with, the camera, the situation, the history itself, but that you've got to find your own way to an image that's really worthwhile because none of these people imitated, they may have learned something, but it was a general thing. They never really imitated each other uh, in a way that, that uh, made their work, you know, form a pattern that you can then take in, out in the street with you and, and somehow make it work for you. Like all genres of art, landscape painting, portraiture, sculpture, there is both the, the, the history which, which shows us the commonalities, the relationship uh, and equivalences between works. But what really makes those equivalences important is that each of the artists was a unique genius in some way. And the same is true of street photography. Street photography is an art form uh, where you've got to kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince. Um, <laughs> uh, so you're, you know, you're out there shooting, and even, as I say, Robert Frank, you know, I, he, it's not like those 83 pictures came to him and he just went home and printed the book and that was it. But nevertheless, uh, the, what emerges from that groping, struggling, wondering, trying different things, trying literally different physical things, different acrobatic things with what you do on the street as you're trying to make the pictures. Out of that emerges a vision. And so the relationship between the commonalities and the uniqueness, which is true of all great art genres, uh, is there. But it's even more of a struggle in photography where there's so many complete images that really you have to let go of to find the one that's really a great one. Jamie Hazel talks about light gesture and color and gesture being sort of like the, for me, the quintessential thing that makes something completely ordinary, extraordinary. And sometimes it can just be the lilt of the head, an expression of emotion, a hand gesture. It's, it's often the very smallest, almost insignificant thing that all of a sudden makes the shot magic. And I, and I can't count the amount of times that I've been there waiting for that moment yeah. where I'm seeing like night, I've got 99% of it there and just waiting for it. And sometimes I get it. And sometimes I completely miss it. That, that's, that's what I call the errant detail. You know, oh, okay. the thing that, that, you know, you were, you were probably at the time you took the picture, it was only even in your subconscious because it, you've got to get to the point where you're reacting by instincts that you're not analyzing as, as you do it because otherwise you'd miss it. And then when you go back, you realize that there was that thing that you're not sure you remember seeing, but that was the thing that was the occasion for the picture and you just got to trust that something, you know, subliminal, you were at a point where you could recognize that, even though you may not have been conscious of it at that moment. And again, it's, it is, the, it is the, de the one detail that's out of place, that's loose, that makes the picture. The picture coheres around the thing that didn't belong. So we're back at Sesame Street, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, and that's something that, it, it, that plays a role both when you're shooting and when you're editing. You know, that, that recognition, because I'll be out there and I'll be shooting and I'll just realize that I'm looking for that little gesture. And then later on when I'm editing the images and I'm taking a look at about, you know, 20 or 50 frames from that same scene, I'm looking for that thing. Everything else is there, but I'm looking for that little, little something. And it's nothing more frustrating than having all those shots and realizing I hadn't gotten it. You know, it wasn't there. And it's was like, just, just keep shooting. Um, how, how about... 
because I, I have I'm not had the chance to see you shoot a lot, except one time we were walking down the street yeah. and we saw the same moment oh, yeah. through the window, oh, and we both raised the it was camera so funny, to the we were eye. on our way to lunch, and we had our cameras, and uh, we both instantly shot these women's legs in the coffee shop yeah. in Hollywood. <laughs> and then we laughed because we were getting the same shot. I haven't seen your shot yet, though. Does that play a role in, in... You mean when you get a shot, when you get a good shot, or you hope you do? Yeah. Well, I, I think that I, I never want to get too sure of myself after taking a picture. I don't want to be so certain I got it because then I'm going to get home and find out it's out of focus or something. <laughs> but you really do feel, I mean, I think you, you know when you got a good shot. Um, and you're just hoping you didn't screw it up. You know, so, so I, I think that... Uh, but when I, I'm always just, I just walk, I, I just walk around a lot, and I lo- I'm looking for something that captures my attention, and then when it does, then I go after it. I've, I've hurt myself a few times by tripping, and, and I broke a camera once. I move pretty fast for somebody that's my age. <laughs> I want to uh, go back for a minute to the, to the um, moment they were talking about when they both took the same picture. One of the things that Joel told me about that was that in the early days, he and Gary, Todd Papa George, sometimes Friedlander, they'd go out together. But there came a point at which they found that they were, you know, that they were too much making the same picture, all of them, and they all went their own way. They, you come to a point where you feel you need that comradeship and you need that support from each other at first, and then there's a point at which you have to you have to liberate yourself from that and go out on your own. And what Joel did was he actually went out for quite a while with another, a really wonderful street photographer who's in the book but who died young, a guy named Tony Ray Jones, an Englishman. And he went out with Tony because Tony made very different kind of pictures. And he and Joel and Todd and, and, and Joel and Gary and so forth, uh, when they would go out, the, the pictures were beginning to look too much alike. And all of them realized that for their own benefit, they had to go their own way. The nice thing about being on the street together is even if you do go your own way, you can say, hey, let's meet up in an hour for lunch. And so that's fun, too, and that's a nice way to do it. I wanted to just read something out of uh, Colin, Colin's book here he, that I think is, uh, you know, you ask about c- candid pictures, and it says uh, uh, they, they have made uh, candid pictures. He's, he's talking about uh, various uh, street photographers. They have made candid pictures of everyday life in the street that at its core, is what street photography is. Yeah, the ethics are, are, the, the ethics are j- just not setting things up and not asking people to do, to do things for you. Uh, you're, it's, it's like if you wa- open the LA Times, when you see any kind of shot in there, you're supposed to know that they got it candidly and, and quickly and, and they didn't pay somebody to get that shot. You're supposed to believe what you see. Street photography is the same thing. You had the opportunity to study with Bernice Abbott, which I know is a big influence. So why don't you tell us about, um, about that relationship and how it changed what you do with the camera? So the question is about uh, how Bernice Abbott affected my life, I guess, in a way, yeah. right? <laughs> um, well, at 23, uh, she was the only thing I had on my resume, so it was a, that, that was a, a perfect uh, way to start, I felt. Um, I, I was really happy to be able to put that experience down. And what it did for me is it taught me so much about, well, Paris in the 20s, because she lived there. Um, and, and it taught me about art, because she had a great library. Um, I was living in the middle of nowhere in Maine, so I did a lot of uh, work in the darkroom, and I read a lot of books, and that's pretty much what I did all the time, and, and hang out with Bernice. She taught me how to do the Charleston. 
So that was good, too. I was with her for a year, and I lived with her for uh, one year, and we printed uh, together most every day that, that she worked. So that's what we were doing. So it was a remarkable experience, and it, it made me understand, I think, for the first time, even though I'd gone to school at RIT and, and I'd studied the history of photography, which, by the way, I think is the second most important photography class to take after the basics. I had studied, and that's why I learned about Bernice Abbott. Um, and so when I found out she needed an apprentice, I'm like on the phone trying everything I can to get the job. It's a great story about how I, how I ended up getting it. But it was a remarkable experience for a young kid from Broken Bow, Nebraska, to be with this historic person. And it made me realize the, the significance of the history of photography. Um, here I was. She was 80, and I was 23. She was, uh, she, she was kind of hard on me at times. I, have a, I wrote a book about all this with my journals, um, and uh, I need to find a publisher one of these days. But, uh, but it, it was really good because she was just a, she, she just taught me the importance of everything, of how it, printing and how, how perfect everything had to be. You know, I, a big influence to me was the, the whole New York street photography scene, of which there plenty has been written of. Um, but one of the things about living in the 21st century is this idea that there are some amazing photographers in Japan, in you know, in Argentina, in Dubai. I, it's, it blows my mind that not only is amazing work happening all over the world, but that I am I have access to it, and I get to learn so much in terms of uh, not only how photography is defined defined by a very small community, you know, from 30 or 40 years ago or 50 years ago now, but today how people are embracing it and making it their own. As you work on, you know, the third edition of the book, how is, how is what you've been seeing over the last decade or so change your perspective on what's happening with street photography? Yeah, street photography is in a very interesting uh, position now. When Zharkovsky was the curator at the Museum of Modern Art, he said that Gary Winogrand was the central figure of his generation. And indeed, he showed a lot of street photography, especially in the early years, and set an agenda for himself that started with Winogrand and Arbus and ultimately got to Eggleston. But it, it was his ability to return to the street and to people working on the street that kind of defined his career. Postmodernism totally decentered that history of photography. And the result is now that it's much harder than it used to be for a street photographer to get a book done, especially a hard copy book. But the whole culture lives online globally, as you say, in a way that it never did before. And partly because people can't um, uh, readily get exhibitions, get uh, gallery sales, get books, and get book sales to support them, they stay in touch with each other on the web uh, in a way that's just astounding. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of photographers out there working all over the world that can be seen on hundreds and hundreds of websites. And while it's not directly making anyone uh, money or a living, it's nevertheless really the, the genre is in some ways, I think, more intense now as a result of that than it was in some ways when, again, I met Joel and Bruce Davidson lived uh, not too far away. And, you know, there were a few people that you could get in touch with. And you thought that was the whole world of street photography. And then you got to know Zharkovsky or go to his exhibitions and you realize it was bigger than you thought. And then, but now it's just amazing. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit the culture now of a uh, hundred years ago 
what it was like when Stieglitz's journals were the only place photographers could get in, in touch with each other. Most of the photographers at that time were doing pictorialist work, very unlike street photography, but that again, he created some, a meeting room, uh, a, a, a um, um, virtual meeting room for photographers through the journals that he published. And the web is now the virtual meeting room for street photography. You've managed to create an amazing community at LACP. That not only is it a place for people to learn photography, but it creates an environment people not only can challenge the way that they learn, but also challenge the way they see and build those relationships that we're talking about. You know, we're primarily focusing on street photography here, but f for you and your experience, not only as a photographer, but as an educator, how important has that community been to helping, you know, further an individual's passion for, for photography rather than working in isolation as so many of us have. Yes, I think especially in the, in the early days when we were all in the dark room, we all felt like we were you know, working alone. We would go out and shoot alone. We'd come back in the dark room for hours and hours alone. Uh, we'd, we'd edit our work alone. Um, so I, you know, I've been an educator for so long. My goal was to always have people come over to my house with photographs in hand, open a bottle of wine, and we'd always have a good time and look at a lot of work. And it's always been that way. And I think that the more you can bring people together to share, the, the more you get excited about going out. I mean, some of my, my friends like to go out and shoot alone, but some of them like to sh shoot with each other, but then they make a pack that they're not going to talk. So that they just got company, but they, you know, they don't want to miss seeing anything. I wanted to also, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to just uh, thank uh, Pamela Schoenberg here, the owner of the gallery, of the DNG Gallery. She's uh, very gracious and has opened her doors to the Los Angeles Center of Photography to do various uh, gallery shows and, and um, educational uh, things like this. And even uh, we've started some classes over here. So thank you, Pamela. It's so nice of you. <laughs> um, also, is Corey here? There she is. I want to say thank you to Corey, too. <laughs> thank you very much for all your help. Thanks for joining us for another episode and for spreading the word. You can show your support for the show by contributing any amount via PayPal. Whether it's $20, $50 or more, your donations continue to help us to improve the quality of the program and you can find a convenient link on the website or in the show notes. The show is edited by Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. The Candid Frame is a member of the TWIP Network. Discover more great photography podcasts such as This Week in Photography, Street Focus, All About the Gear, and more by visiting TWIP.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>